What's up, guys? Before we get going today, just want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, I'm glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. They're the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced monitoring mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. I wouldn't BS you guys on this one. Skybox knows what they're doing. There's a lot of posers out there in the handicapping world. You know, the Twitter guy that's anonymous that claims he's gone 19-2 and two in his last 21 plays or something stupid like that. That's not what Skybox is. It, they, you pay them, and they deliver results. It's really that simple. I hope you cashed in on their British Open picks. They're killing it on NASCAR right now. You need to go test these guys out, particularly as we get into football season. If football is what kind of butters your bread, I would encourage you to try these guys out for a month. Maybe you hit some uh, some baseball, maybe a little bit of NASCAR beforehand. I don't know. Whatever uh, tickles your fancy. Go test these guys out before football season if you don't want to take my word for it. I promise you they're going to lead you to profit. I would tell you to go ahead and buy the full year pass because uh, it's going to pay itself back and then some. But if not, and you need a kind of a little bit of a week-by-week week or month-by-month month thing, they have week-long all-sports, week-long sports-centric, month-long all-sports, month-long sports-centric. Whatever really fits your price range, I promise you they're going to have a package that fits your uh, budget price range, whatever you want to call it. But these guys are legitimate. Please don't just go wander off in the wilderness um, kind of going off your own knowledge because I promise you, you're going to end up with a text from your bookie at Monday morning at 8 a.m. And no one wants that. If you go with Skybox, you'll actually get to text the bookie and be like, hey, pay up, pal, because Skybox just wrecked you. So check them out, skyboxsportspick.com. I promise you I wouldn't steer you guys the wrong way. They're the best in the industry, and you will benefit from it. So something to keep in mind as we get toward football season. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Had Greg on for a grill corner last week. May get him on in the next week or so as we kind of navigate through the end of this little dead period here. But check him out. Y'all know the drill. Been a longtime sponsor of uh, any sort of podcast. I was about to say the Rippy Rights podcast, but any sort of podcast I've done. Really appreciate Greg's friendship, his uh, business as well. Oxford is so lucky to have LB's like you have no idea if you haven't gone in there which i know most of you listening to the podcast definitely have you need to go check it out if you're a subscriber to the rippy rights newsletter you get a 16 ounce prime strip for 15 bucks right now and a pack of sausage for five bucks so if you subscribe rippy you get a newsletter three to five times a week from yours truly and also discounted meats i would say the latter is better than the former but uh if you want to say the opposite that would be nice but anyway Absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Lane Train Special, Keith Carter Special, all kinds of seafood, sausages. Don't go waste your time at Kroger. Uh, Greg is going to take care of you. He's going to. He's got barbecue sauces, all kinds of stuff there. Greg is going to actually meet your needs and do it with better quality, I promise you, than any other place you go. Check him out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Today on the podcast, we have Mark Harris. He's the associate editor at Bro Bible, which is a – millennial sports and lifestyle website i believe they're headquartered in new york i got to know mark just honestly the most millennial thing ever through social media he's big into golf he does very good golf writing i've enjoyed reading his golf writing particularly over the last year and a half and so i had him on to talk british open Ryder cup colin morikawa 
Bryson DeChambeau, a lot of different golf stuff uh, from what I thought was a pretty cool open championship, despite the course not being the greatest and maybe the final round lacking some drama. But uh, we kind of talked about a lot of different stuff from that standpoint. And then there's an open from yours truly at the top about SEC media days where I make fun of media members and then actually talk about what is significant and what isn't about SEC media days and give a little bit of perspective uh, about covering it a couple of times through the years. You may find it interesting. You may not. I just gave some thoughts on it. It's July. But uh, let's go. Rippy writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Monday night, Tuesday, whenever you're listening to this. I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. On the other end of the line is no one yet. We're going to get to Mark Harris in a minute. Mark is an associate editor at Bro Bible, as I mentioned at the top. We're getting some golf, some British Open stuff, Ryder Cup. It's that time of year. Still deadish season, but we do have the unofficial start of SEC football this week. And that is the kickoff party that is SEC Media Days. And that is what today's Open is about. Before we get to Mark Harris, is SEC Media Days. The impact it actually has, what it's meant for, and uh, I covered it a couple times, so I don't know. Maybe I'll just give some insight that's either interesting or completely uninteresting, and you could skip through because it's the dead middle of summer. I don't know, but I'm just going to give you some thoughts that I have on the event that is SEC Media Days because it seems like every media person has some sort of opinion on this event, and uh, it kind of varies greatly depending on who you talk to and who you ask. I think like the trendy thing over the last half decade or so is to talk about how much you hate going to SEC media days and how much you hate covering it. And uh, I think I fall somewhere in between the middle between that and, you know, the old big J columnist that's been at whatever local newspaper he's been at for 35 years, putting out the column uh, that he's covered every single one of them. Shout out Ron Higgins who wrote a banger of a column two years ago that had no other purpose than to, to explicitly state that he had covered every SEC media days as if that is some sort of accomplishment. The headline should have been, I'm a fossil. Anyway, that was probably a little mean, a little savage, but you get what I'm saying. There's a lot of real estate in between the two camps of the people that either loathe it actually or act like they love going to the event or the people that it's almost like a social status thing to uh, knock another uh, notch on the old belt of how many SEC media days they covered as if anyone cares at all. I kind of fell somewhere in the middle. I now working, you know, doing this part-time and working as a uh, grease salesman, I wouldn't say I, uh, I necessarily miss. It was not the worst thing to cover, but I also don't miss being there, I think would be the best way to describe it. I also I thought it was a cool thing, particularly working in radio, because we would go and set up for all three, four days, however many days it is, I can't even really remember. Instead of just going for the day that Ole Miss was there, or for my uh, cohort, Brian Haydad's case, the day that State was there, we'd be there all four days. And so I got to see people and uh, friends within the industry that I don't really get to see that often. And then you get a lot of people in the same place, which was kind of nice. And, you know, you go out afterward and you drink and uh, and everyone has a good time. But that's not really what I'm here to talk about. I'm not trying to give you like the inside baseball access point of uh, covering SEC media days as if that is some sort of cool feat. That is uh, some rarity that everyone should strive to do because it's not. I mean, you pretty much sit in a hotel room for four days and go into a this freezing cold ballroom and then you have a bunch of people ask terrible questions 
to these football coaches that don't want to be there, these players that maybe don't necessarily not want to be there, they get to kind of dress up, look cool. They're, uh, you know, there's a lot of TV stuff. It's a TV-made event. But in terms of answering, like, print and online media questions, it's pretty worthless. No one says anything noteworthy. And so for that reason, it seems like kind of a waste of time. But, again, it's good for TV. It's a TV event. It's kind of the unofficial start of SEC football season and it celebrates, you know, the year to come and it gives the guys further exposure. You could argue whether they need that or not, but you know, I suppose the event does more good than it does, you know, bad or just kind of cringeworthy type of thing. I think honestly, the thing that makes it cringeworthy is the terrible questions and the uh, collective egos you get when you get that many big J journalists in a room, because, you know, being a Gannett columnist comes with a very, very serious badge. I think, uh, I think you have to take a sworn oath. If I'm not mistaken, I don't know. I will have to ask Dan Wolkin about that uh, because I have not uh, been officially sworn into the Big J Society. But you basically get to walk around there, or required to walk around there, like you own the place and uh, that you're also too good for it at the same time, which is a hell of a line to straddle. I'm kind of rambling, but, uh, you know, whatever. I'm just saying that it does serve a purpose. It's probably just not serving the people who often make the event somewhat insufferable, if that makes any sense. But uh, my media uh, side swipes aside, let's talk about Ole Miss. And I know by the time a lot of people listen to this, this will probably be outdated in the sense that Ole Miss will have probably already gone to the podium because I am recording this on a Monday night, which normally the Monday pod drops much earlier, but I wanted to get Mark Harris on and talk some golf. I think we had a really good conversation and uh, just the way the scheduling worked out Monday was the best way to do it anyway. So this is probably going to be outdated, but I don't think it matters. Ole Miss, like at the same time, as, as much as little as you're going to get out of an SEC media day from the soundbite standpoint, um, there are some things that are kind of indicators from the event and it's kind of how, how your team or how a team, how a coach and the group of players they decided to take to it is kind of perceived beforehand and kind of the, I guess, collective vibe they give off at SEC Media Days, if that makes any sense at all. I guess what I'm trying to get at is 2016, painful SEC Media Days for Ole Miss. That was the infamous Hugh Freeze, sorry, 2017 SEC Media Days. I apologize. I have my years mixed up. 2017 SEC Media Days was painful for Ole Miss. That was the infamous Hugh Freeze filibuster where basically you got to fill half an hour in that main room before they take you off to the side rooms. And I think you talked to local media after, though we did it before a couple years. Doesn't matter. The main room is kind of like the big boogeyman if you got skeletons in the closet. You got to figure out how to survive the main room. And, of course, everyone knows the story. Hugh Freeze went on like a 20-something minute monologue just going through every part of his roster, basically killing time to not have to answer questions, and then had a certain uh, reporter uh, have a question planted first about the special teams, which was hilarious. But you get what I'm getting at in the sense that there was a very bad vibe surrounding Ole Miss and the football program heading into SEC Media Days that year. And as worthless as I've kind of made it sound from a print standpoint, I do think that matters to some degree in terms of just I think we're lazy as both a collective media fan base society in general, in terms of like the storylines we accept, particularly as it pertains to college football. Uh, it's kind of the first thing that comes to mind was, 
you know, the four years in a row was it was Tennessee going to challenge for the SEC East under Butch Jones. And it's actually, no, they just suck. They're not good. Like, you can talk that into existence if you want to. But, you know, one national guy writes a column about it and it all of a sudden becomes a storyline for three years. So, like, perception matters even if the perception is not necessarily accurate. And I would say in Ole Miss's case that year was accurate. It was kind of a shit show around Oxford. And Ole Miss had to kind of navigate that on uh, one of the bigger stages in college sports, which is SEC Media Days. And it was not a good, uh, you know, couple hours for the program. I remember watching that. I was an intern at the Arkansas Democrat Gazette about to come back to actually work in-house for the athletic department that year, sitting there thinking, well, this should be fun. Because I was going back to grad school. It was a GA ship with the athletic department. And I was like, being the in-house guy who's not allowed to critique any of this, this should be great to put a positive spin on this. And guess what? It wasn't. I found myself three months later sitting in a press box uh, at Bryant-Denny Stadium with Matt Luke as the head coach, trying to figure out how to put a positive spin on 66-3 loss to Alabama. Gary Wunderlich's field goal, not quite enough as the Rebels fall 66-3. to A lot of headlines going through the head then. Anyway, you get my point. Then the next couple years, Ole Miss was kind of an afterthought. They were pretty irrelevant in 18. Matt Luke was kind of I guess lobbying for the fact that he did deserve this job and that he was prepared and he was prepared to lead Ole Miss out of the wilderness and all that. And then you fast forward to the last time that SEC media days happened. And that was the 2019 SEC media days where Luke had just hired two coordinators that had just been sitting power five head coaches in the PAC 12 in the last two years. Um, Young quarterback and Matt Corral, it was his time to take over the program after Jordan Te'amu. And, they were a plucky underdog story, but not necessarily close to a main attraction at SEC Media Days at all. I, I think, you know, the big storyline that it was kind of a big deal that Matt Corral was going to SEC Media Days as a freshman, as if that really matters in the scheme of things. But freshmen don't get really taken to SEC Media Days often. So, like, that year they were kind of the young upstart. Could they kind of make some noise? Could Matt Luke actually build something out of it? Spoiler alert, he didn't. Shout out Elijah Moore, dog pee. I don't really need to rehash that season again. But the vibe you give off, for the lack of a better phrase, and I know that it's such like a millennial uh, Gen Z phrase, and I don't even really say vibe a lot, but I can't think of a better word right now. The collective aura, persona, kind of perception you give off, I think does matter to some degree. And honestly, for the first time in half a decade, Ole Miss kind of has something to sell with the vibe and the persona they give off. Uh, you know, they went five and five last year, and probably in a normal football season, you could make an argument they'd have had a puncher's chance at going seven and four. They won the Outback Bowl. I know it wasn't a normal season, but they returned pretty much everything on offense outside of receiver and they were an exciting offense. Matt Corral returns at quarterback. Of course, Ole Miss is bringing Matt Corral and Jalen Jones with them along with Lane Kiffin. And so for the first time in half a decade, Ole Miss kind of has something to – I don't know if sell is the right word because they're not just sort of going over there to sell the program, but there's something – There's they, they can kind of ride the buzz train. Some you know There's going to be all kinds of national columns written about Matt Corral and the continuity that eluded him early in his career. And is he ready to take the next step and become a Heisman contender? And can Lane, you know, take Ole Miss, you know, up to the next step to maybe an eight, nine win team next year and really set the table to actually compete in the SEC West in year three uh, you know, whether you believe that to be true or not remains to be seen, but I promise you these are the things 
that are going to be written about Lane Kiffin and Matt Corral from a football's perspective. And then you have Jalen Jones, which is kind of hilarious. And I doubt anyone does this sort of digging at SEC Media Days because, like I mentioned, we are all kind of lazy. It's a big stage. You don't really get any intimate access. Jalen Jones played in every single game with one start in the 2016 football season when Reverend Hugh Freeze was the head coach and Chad Kelly was the quarterback. That's right. The 2016, he played in the game in Orlando where Ole Miss was up 28 to six against Florida state. You thought you might have a national title contender on your hands. And then all of a sudden that team went five and seven and was struggling with Georgia Southern in the second half with Taylor Polk playing linebacker. Jaywin Jones played on that team. That man is old six year senior old. And I find that aspect of it fascinating. I'll be curious if anyone writes that story. I'm not necessarily Jaywin Jones has a, uh, you know, a whole lot, I say profound to say that makes me sound like I'm shortchanging Jaywin Jones. The storyline for Ole Miss this year, like this week at SEC Media Days, is not going to be their defense, although I think it is absolutely the overarching storyline coming into the year. But uh, Matt Corral and Lane Kiffin will kind of be the selling point at SEC Media Days. And I think that is important, that there is a positive vibe around the Ole Miss football program. And there's been that internally in the past. There was a little bit of a positive buzz, whether you people – I uh, want to admit it or not, whether you're a Matt Luke hater or you were in the Matt Luke camp or fell somewhere in between, there was some positive energy around the program at SEC Media Days in 2019. It was a different kind. It was, hey, he's hired two big boy coordinators in Mike McIntyre and Rich Rodriguez. He's got a kid that's got a hell of a lot of arm talent at quarterback and a really young football team. And they just come out of the NCAA investigation. The postseason ban was over. There was a positive-ish vibe. The problem was they didn't have the talent to actually kind of follow up on that in terms of it being on the field. This is a different kind of vibe. Ole Miss has kind of the, the, the spark offensively, the talent offensively, and, you know, you would think maybe a little bit of an improved defense to kind of make some waves in the SEC this year. You go down Ole Miss's schedule – there's really only one guaranteed loss. I do think Alabama and Tuscaloosa will beat them. If you don't believe that, sorry, I don't really know what to tell you. But outside of that, you can make a case for every game. I'm not predicting Ole Miss to go 11-1, and one, but there's a case to be made for 11 games on the schedule they could win. Again, don't think it's going to happen. And so that's kind of a different air, air to be in. That's a different – that's kind of a rarefied air for this Ole Miss program who's really been through it really since – 2014 on because as good as a year as 2015 ended up being there the, the NCAA cloud began to darken over them and so I do think that's an important thing from that standpoint to where Ole Miss is going to be like they share the day with Kentucky Georgia and Tennessee if I'm not mistaken on Tuesday and as most of you are listening to this this is either happening as we speak or has already happened there's an argument to be made that Ole Miss is the most compelling storyline of the day of course you'll get the same questions with Kirby Smart about whether he's ready to beat Alabama and take a step and actually win a national championship at Georgia and all the lazy storylines, the same people that don't actually watch nearly as much college football as I think they would like you to believe are going to ask and formulate heading into the season. But outside of that, you could make an argument Ole Miss is the most compelling storyline of the second day of SEC media days. And I think it's been a quite a while since that's been the case. And does it really matter in the long run? No, because in September, no one's going to remember what anyone said at SEC Media Days, but this is kind of a PR deal, particularly from a PE 
TV perspective, excuse me, for your program. And, you know, the more you have to sell, the more kind of positive goodwill, positive vibes, as I keep saying, whatever you want to call it, you're going to generate from this event that was made for TV and you'll have a bunch of written stuff to kind of supplement it. Uh, Ole Miss has as much to sell as anyone in the Southeastern Conference right now. Um, you know, Alabama is going to be Alabama, and I think that storyline is almost stale at this point. Who else is selling something more exciting than Ole Miss? Texas A&M maybe? They did go 11-1 and last year. That's probably a pretty good candidate. Um, not Auburn. There's the excitement of a first-year head coach, kind of the same deal with Tennessee, but I don't think anyone expects them to be any good. Um, you know, Sam Pittman had a pretty good year last year, but really Sam Pittman had a pretty good October, and it was pretty pedestrian after that. And Arkansas, well, I think they have kind of fared better through the first 12, 15 months of the Sam Pittman era than most people probably expected. I don't think the bar is the same as Ole Miss in year two under Lane Kiffin it is for Sam Pittman in Arkansas. You know, State put some things together in the second half of last season, and there's some positive things to sell with Real Rogers or the kid that they got from Texas that's going to be the exciting quarterback of their future, they think. But that's not really the same caliber. Um, I mean, how LSU, you could count the scandals in Baton Rouge on two hands, and I guarantee they won't get asked about it, but Ed's not selling anything that's overly exciting. Kentucky's got a pretty good football team, but actually at the same time, it's Kentucky. You know, Dan Mullen will have cool shoes, as if anyone gives a shit about that, and will probably act and say something off-putting or snarky that uh, makes a little bit of headlines. But you get like if you get what I'm getting at, Ole Miss has much as as much positive to sell right now as anyone in the SEC. And I think SEC media days are a pretty good barometer of what you have to sell, either positively or negatively. And I would say the the other side of that coin was Ole Miss in 2017, where you had the awkward freeze filibuster where there were multiple reporters in the room that knew about the whole escort story that was coming the next week they were just delaying the inevitable whether freeze knew that or not i have no idea there's other people probably better tuned to talk to about that but like not to belabor the point you can sell something positive you can be an afterthought or you can sell something negative and i think Ole Miss has some as much to sell positive as any school in the southeastern conference and i think that matters to some degree uh no matter what you think about SEC media days. So that was today's open. Let's get to some golf talk. We'll have some uh, football talk later in the week. I have some exciting things in the works for football season for the Rippy Rights podcast. Got a couple regular guests lined up. I'll have an update on that probably later in the week, maybe early next week. Still trying to decide how I want to drop that, but some great things in the works. So uh, golf, not your thing. Sorry, bear with me. We got about one a week or so more of uh, the dead period before we get into fall camp and really get this train rolling for football season. I'm excited about it. So uh, bear with me. But for now, here is Bro Bible Associate Editor Mark Harris, big golf guy, Southerner, originally from Jackson, Tennessee, now lives in the Memphis area. Uh, does some really good golf writing. You should check his work out. Uh, he has a newsletter as well. But we talked some British Open, Jordan Spieth, Colin Morikawa's Ascension, uh, the Ryder Cup, and, of course, some Bryson DeChambeau at the end. So, without further ado, here is Mark Harris. All right, we now welcome on Mark Harris, Associate Editor of Bro Bible, Southerner, Golf Fanatic. I always feel like I'm going to do these, like, official uh, podcast opens. I either end up, one, screwing them up, two, just listing a bunch of random facts, or, like, three, both. Uh, <laughs> that cover it? What's up, man? Yeah, that, that's about it, man. Yeah, just uh, Editor Bro Bible, kind of the – the golf beat reporter over there and just tap in whenever some help's needed, social media, all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, man, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. We're going to talk some British Open, get into uh, some different things. Uh, hell, maybe the Barbasol playoff might have been the best. Thing no thing about that. that was no a hell kidding. of a nightcap yesterday. I know, I know. I, I actually, I wasn't watching it, but I was keeping it up on Twitter, and then I was, I, I watched it right up until the 18th, and some stuff popped up. But I guess JT Poston kind of blew it away, and then Seamus Power. But yeah, long, long day of golf yesterday. For sure. So before we get into that, let's get kind of get into your background a little bit. You mentioned obviously associate editor at Bro Bible. Um, you know. Tie, you're originally from Jackson, Tennessee. Some ties to Ole Miss, obviously. Like golf, kind of, kind of give me your journey from uh, from uh, journalism school to bro Bible now. Yeah, yeah. So uh, grew up in Jackson, Tennessee. My dad graduated from Ole Miss, and Jackson just being a couple hours from Oxford. I grew up going to every home football game. Got to, you know, I guess I was ten or twelve-ish when Eli Manning was there. So got to experience all that kind of stuff and going to games my whole life. Um, as far as college went. Went to undergrad at Chattanooga, um, loved it there, did not get a journalism degree there, got an exercise science degree, which that's clearly paying off really, really well, but uh, kind of started blogging mostly about the uh, Nashville Predators, uh, actually, um, just kind of got in with them and covered them for multiple seasons, you know, did the, pre- the media pass stuff, did all that, so that kind of got my feet wet, and I was like, I need some schooling on the back end of this, so I went to uh, Knoxville did the journalism school and, you know, a year and a summer, whatever, kind of knocked it out. And, uh, yeah, just kind of been a long journey. Worked for the Tennessee Smokies up there for my, you know, master's project, if you want to call it that. So got to live the minor league baseball life, and I did not recommend that to anybody listening um, as a unpaid intern doing everything over there. But, yeah, it's paid off, man. I've been at Row Bible, I think, coming up on – I think it'll be three years full-time this fall. Um but yeah, back in Memphis now, me and my wife just moved back to Memphis, back in God's country. We were living up in New York for a while, for about a year and a half. COVID hit, moved to Philly. COVID was still hanging around. And then we finally, you know, got back to where we wanted to be. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, so I was the exact same way. I was actually a risk and insurance major in college. And I can't tell you shit about insurance. I figured, oh, yeah. No. I figured I could like write, I figured out I could like write on the side. And then, you know, next thing you know, like we turned it into all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, this might actually be something I want to do for a while. So I, I certainly feel that. But uh, I don't think necessarily missing a journalism degree. I don't think we were missing a whole hell of a lot. But it does – I did the minor and then the master's in it too. So, like, it does help to kind of, like, yeah. get a little bit of bearings. But also, you know, I mean, now I'm working marketing in the DFW area and do this for Rebel Grove and have the newsletter or whatever part-time. Right. And uh, I think the whole job hunt in the middle of the pandemic might have been slightly tougher – uh, with the journalism degree, uh, if I was trying to look elsewhere, so yeah, I don't yeah. know. The, nothing I've done school-wise versus work-wise has really translated at all. But we're surviving yeah. uh, anyhow. Part of part of the journey, man. Just part of the journey. So I, I'm curious. So when you like, I guess when we first kind of crossed paths, which like the most like millennial Gen Z thing nowadays is like I on social media. I knew yeah. you did a lot of golf. I knew what Bro Bible was. From it's like obviously it has a large social media presence. It feels like it kind of dipped its hands in a lot of different things, mm-hmm. content wise. But like I never knew like until I obviously recently like what it was and what it did and what it purpose it served. So how did you end up there? And were you familiar with it before that? Yeah, I mean I always read it. it you know I wasn't you know a religious re- uh, reader of the website before. Um, they've been around since two thousand nine. Um, they were independent for a while, then they worked with. Um, they were under kind of that Uproxx umbrella for a little while when they, you know, had the offices in New York and that kind of stuff. And I guess the middle 2010s-ish, 2015, 
era was, uh, they were kind of mostly focused on just kind of pop culture and gear stuff. So they were, you know, big gear. We do a lot of gear stuff now still, you know, it's, it's, it's a men's lifestyle and sports website. And so we, we, like you said, we dip our hands in a lot of different stuff, um, which I think is good. You know, we have a team all over the country and stuff and got people on the West coast, Southeast, um, you know, Nashville here in Memphis, a couple guys in Florida, but, um, yeah, it's just how I got into it. Um, just, you know, you know how it goes, putting out feelers, getting lucky. Um, I did kind of some independent, not independent, but as a freelancer for a few months and they were looking to hire a guy full time. I was like, I'll take it. I was working, you know, a regular desk nine to five job um, in Nashville and New York, um, just in the music royalty kind of business deal, just looking at data and spreadsheets all day. And I was like, sure. Yeah, I'll do this for full time for sure. You know, that was, like I said, it's part of the journey. You got to kind of pay your dues to get there and it, you know, it all fell into place. For sure. Was there ever a part of you, like when you got up there, obviously you're moving to New York to go work up there full time. Like I'll never forget, like when I was kind of, I was still in school at the time and I've kind of like, I guess done the opposite since and gotten back out. But like, I remember getting my first full-time gig, which was actually a radio job. And I had Mm -hmm. absolutely zero radio experience. So that was not, but I remember like walking in the first day, I was like, how the hell did I end up here? Like, how's happening right now? What was that kind of like making that transition to New York? Yeah, I mean, people ask me that. Like, you know, I'll be on the golf course and they'll be like, oh, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, I'm an editor and social media guy and I write about golf and all this kind of stuff at Bro Bible. And obviously, you know, nine out of 10 guys around our age know what Bro Bible is. But like, how the hell did you get there? And I was like, man, I don't know. I don't, it, it'll take me two holes to tell you how I got there. You know, it's just, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's been great, man. You just, you just keep grinding. That's all. That's all I keep telling people. You just keep grinding and get it there. And but uh, yeah, the transition was good. Full time. You, you're like, you know, I can't believe this is. I can do this for a living and that kind of stuff. So no, no complaints over here. How'd your interest in golf spark? Is it one of those things where you just kind of played it your whole life? I was kind of the same way. I uh, yeah. It's kind of funny looking at it nowadays. So like, I have this. So like in the newsletter, I'm just basically overly obnoxious about the five kind of Mississippi guys that are up yeah. in pro golf now. And like most of them are around my age. And so, like, I, you know, they went on to, like, actually be good at the sport or whatever. And I just, yeah. kinda, you know, slap dicked around and I played till the yeah. high school. But how did you, what was, where did your interest in golf kind of spawn? Have you always played it? You're left handed too, right? If I remember yeah. that. Man, the fact- yeah, I'm a lefty. Yep. Um, I'm a lefty. Just grew up playing it. My dad and uncle and his dad were big golfers. Um, basically, grew up, grew up across the street from Jackson Country Club in Jackson, Tennessee. Um, my brother, big time golfer. He's he played at Memphis. Um, he's the assistant professional Memphis Country Club now. Oh, awesome. so got that kind of stuff. He's also left-handed, so I get all his hand-me-down stuff, uh, which is which is nice. But um, yeah, just grew up around the sport. Played it my entire life. I was I was soccer and golf, and then once you know sophomore year of high school came around, I was like, I'm done playing soccer. Let's let's focus on some golf. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of like transitioning to just what we just witnessed over the last four days over uh, across the pond. Obviously, Colin Morikawa wins the British or the Open Championship. Sorry, that's a, we'll get into that in a second. That <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I saw the take yesterday from a lot of people that it, like they were like that was the most boring major of the year, and I was like, well, maybe because the Masters kind of kicked ass, and then you had the PGA yeah. and John John Rahm's Rahm at the U.S. O- run at the U.S. Open was pretty cool, but I didn't find yesterday uh, boring at all, to be honest, because like. I don't know. I guess you looked at it yesterday going in and it was like, okay, this leaderboard has a, t- a lot of potential. Like this could get weird. And it very quickly became a two horse race, but I kind of, I know there wasn't like much jockeying because of what Morikawa did, but I kind of enjoyed 
like seeing him fend off speed. I was not bored by it. I mean, hell, speed had a stretch of where he was like 600 through eight holes and never sniffed the lead. I just thought Morikawa was just kind of unconscious. I was entertained by it. I don't know about you. Yeah, it was – I kind of was thinking about that. Kind of my, my column after the thing over at Bro Bible was, you know, I think the title was, you know, Royal St. George's stunk, Colin, Mountain, Colin Morikawa did not. And I think that was a good way to put it. Like, the golf course was just – without the elements, it was clear that, like, that Royal St. George's, one of those courses on the open road that it's like, if they don't have weather, the place might be pretty boring. If they don't have a good leaderboard, it's going to be really boring. Like, say it wasn't – say Morikawa didn't play well yesterday. Louie played okay. And, you know, you had Corey Connors or Dylan Fratelli making a run. We're talking about a completely different thing where people aren't really tuned in. But I thought, yeah, I mean, yesterday everything fell into place. Louis stays and did his thing. Shot one over, as he always does in final rounds with the lead. But Morikawa, I mean, the dude is just – he's a killer. Like, he's an assassin. He, I mean, he's, he's a freak. He didn't miss a single he, – he missed two shots yesterday. He missed the green on 10 and 15, 14 or 15, where he had those two just ridiculous up-and-down par saves. But, like, that guy, at 24 years old, he's mature beyond belief. I actually got to interview him a couple months – or right after the PGA, after he won the PGA Championship. And I was like, dude, are you sure – back then he was only 23, I think, when he won that. And I was like, man, are you sure? Like, what's – he was just – he's so professional and just a good dude, and he's – his game plan is so good. His caddy and his relationship are good, so good. He's just he's just a killer. And it, yeah, I mean that was incredible to watch. And he had Spieth and Rom, you know, a couple holes ahead, you know, putting it on. Rom shot four under yesterday. If the putter was remotely hot, he, I think sixty three was in play. So all that, all the names were there. So it it worked out okay, but it could have not. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and yeah, that's cool. You got to interview Morikawa. I. He, you know, these dudes are also put together nowadays to where, like, you know, I'm 26, and, I, like, that's two years ago for me. And I'm like, I could not oh, no. talk in front of that many people. I mean, hell, I guess oh, no. I'm doing a difference. I'm definitely not that put together, I guess, would be the best <laughs> about it. But one of the things I wrote about this morning in the, in the newsletter was, like, so we've kind of gotten past this phase of, you know, right after, like, we it's almost felt like golf didn't want to accept it. Like Tiger was gone at least for a while. And so the next guy that won a couple majors before he really turned, you know, late twenties, early thirties, you kind of wanted to dub the next guy. And, you know, whether it was Rory or Spieth or a couple in between. And of course life happens, golf happens, whatever. And like, I think we've gone past that, but hell, if there was ever a guy to put that absurd title on, is it not the guy that's won 25% of the majors he played? I mean, this, yeah, I guess kind of his personality is a little unassuming, so I've, maybe he's not talked about in the same light. But this run he's on, I, I, Kyle Porter, I think, had this yesterday. His first fifty PGA Tour events, he's won five of them in two of her majors. Like this guy's been yeah. a for twenty five months. This is absurd. Yeah, I was, I was watching Golf Channel before we hopped on, and Brian Labner, who's kind of their stats guy and a writer over there, he had this stat. And I wrote it down. It said. In seven full-field events since Morikawa turned pro, because he only turned pro two years ago, he's been in – this is, you know, talking about his putting, kind of the putting is kind of the only thing that holds him back, so to speak. But in the seven full-field full events he's played since he turned pro, he's been inside the top 20 in putting seven times. That's resulted in five wins and two playoff losses. So like, if his putting is, you know, above average in a full-field event, odds are the Cat's going to win. And then I don't know if you saw the stat earlier in the week where it was his ball striking, the strokes gained approach is so much better than everybody else's. Between one, he's number one, Paul Casey's number two. But the difference between one and two there is the same difference between Paul Casey and the guy ranked 55th in that category. 
He's picking up almost six shots a tournament just with his iron play. He's the best ball striker since Tiger Woods. If he keeps this up, it's going to be – and like I said, the putter is remotely warm. It's a, you know, top five, top ten finish every time he tees it up. That's uh, – I didn't know either one of those stats, but I, I wish I had because that was kind of the same thing I wrote without absolute – like any data to back it up, which is – I'm perfectly fine with that. But I wrote, <laughs> it's like this guy ever gets hot with the putter, like he's almost kind of unstoppable. But you're exactly yeah. right. Like, you know, everyone – as I kind of outlined, like in the day and age of like everyone wanting to compare something to what Tiger was. And, you know, now we've kind of accepted that that's probably never happening again. The fields are stronger. Like everyone, you know, deeper, better, whatever. But if you want to really want to compare something, there you really haven't seen ball striking like this. The guy never misses the center of the club face. Like it's it's kind of absurd. And you're exactly right. You're dead on. Like if he does get remotely hot with the putter, like it's kind of over with. And so I, I'm always like hesitant to be like, well, let's like you know this guy's going to be a force. Like he's going to get six majors in the next eight years or something like that. Because you know things happen. You know guys going out. But I just this is not like a fluke. Like, he's not on some insane run. This is kind of what he does every week. And, yes, the putter can hold him back sometimes. But, like, I don't know if there's ever been a point in the last two years in his short career where he's just kind of lost it swing-wise. Like, it doesn't seem to happen to him, which is right. kind of a scary proposition. So, how I don't even know what my question was. But, like, I <laughs> find it incredible to watch because, like, if you're actually trying to, like, you know, turn back the clock and kind of compare something to that mid-2000s Tiger era – his ball striking is actually the only thing you could probably do it to. Right, right. And like you said, you kind of said that golf can be kind of fluky. I mean, look at Phil won a major, what, two months ago at Kiowa, and he was dead last after Thursday. I think, I think he shot 80 or 81 on Thursday. Golf is weird. And then even more Cowboy with his ball striking, he went to Scotland and played in the Scottish Open the week before. He literally came out and said, I can't hit my irons off this turf. Like, I can't get through the ball. He's relatively shallow with the swing. Get that cut on every single shot most of the time. And he switched iron seven through nine this week, just, you know, two days before the tournament starts. And he goes out there and shoots 15 under after saying, I literally can't hit off this grass. So, it, like, a, he's just – he's different. Like, his hands are so good. His swing is so good. Tempo is unbelievable. But, yeah, it just comes down to the putter, as, as it does for a lot of guys. I think you could say the same thing about John Rahm, uh, Justin Thomas. Uh, Jordan Spieth is kind of the opposite. If he keeps it in play off the tee, he's you know, a, uh, he's he's a freak too. If he keeps it off, keeps it on the planet up with the driver, which he did this week. I think hell, that's worth talking about too because we got to wait nine months till the next major, unfortunately. But Augusta is looking pretty sweet for Spieth if he can keep it together. Yeah, no kidding. And so kind of like I guess last thing on like Morikawa. One, he's. He's going to be an absolute pain in the ass when it comes to the Ryder Cup, and it's going to be absolutely incredible to watch. And I think there may be a little bit of uh, enemy potential here because he's a great guy, right? He took the first, like, what, you know, 90 seconds to two minutes of his, uh, you know, kind of whatever you want to call it, acceptance speech, to shout out the low amateur or whatever. But then yeah, yeah. <laughs> he calls it the British Open and then yep. completely butchers the champion golfer of the year. I think he called yep. it champion winner of the year and I know it was completely <laughs> unintentional but like yeah. on golf twitter like there were so many euros that were so pissed off about that like he's probably got a little bit of like a maybe a little bit of annoying uh, American potential but I loved it I thought that shit was hilarious because he didn't even do it on purpose and he could not have cared like that was so funny to me so like I'm looking forward to the Ryder Cup for a lot of reasons but that guy has the potential to kind of um 
you know, your legacy is mostly defined on what you do in major championships, but you can kind of become like a little cult hero. Hell, Patrick Reed oh, yeah. was once likable because of the Ryder Cup at one time. Patrick Reed and Ian Poulter. Ian Poulter is the same way. Yes, that can change your likability. So he's got a little bit of a chance here to become a cult hero. He goes like four and one or some shit throughout the week. Like, he's got yeah. a shot to like really kind of get on the radar in terms of likability. Not that he's not likable. He's just not very boisterous right. or outgoing. Right, right. Yeah, I go back and with the Ryder Cup like obviously I'm pulling for the Americans I think the European team could be really really nasty um but yeah Morikawa is obviously a lot to make it and then the captain's picks is what's going to define it I don't I don't think you know Morikawa is going to struggle there he's not going to struggle on any golf course but yeah you make a good point like he could as a not you know highly marketable guy if he goes up there and you know wins three or four matches and you know just murders yeah, hell, if he goes up against Poulter or Tyrrell Hatton and, it, you know, it goes back and forth kind of deal. Um, yeah, it could be it could be pretty special. Yeah, absolutely. And so before we get to the – I'll get to the golf course in a second, but you mentioned speed, obviously. that That is definitely worth talking about. And you nailed it where, you know, if he keeps his driver in the map – and he, I think he did it beyond that. He was kind of – Oh, yeah. On around, he was striping it. And so – you know, he played absolutely, and he said this in his post-round presser. He's like, I played well enough to win today, which he absolutely did. Morikawa was just absolutely unflappable. It's good to see him hitting the driver that well again. He seems like in, you know, golf, fickle game, things can change, but he seems almost like a lock to win another major in 2022. And, like, should that happen, it'll be kind of wild that he went a half decade without winning one. But, like, to me, this is the best he's looked since 2016, 17-ish, and it's good to see. Sure. It's almost kind of crazy to think that he spent, what, I mean, really two of those years in almost complete irrelevancy, and you talk about the biggest stages. Yeah, I mean, he was – listening to the Golf Channel again before, It was they were saying that he was ranked like 212th on tour and driving last year alone. I mean, you're not going to win a golf tournament going 212th off the tee on the PGA Tour having to hit driver in a lot of holes. But, I mean, it was his Saturday that kind of – they kind of – kept him out of it he bogeyed 17 and 18 on Saturday in pretty good positions off the tee he he makes par on those two hole those two holes he's in the playoff in Morikawa yesterday which would have been an all-timer of a playoff between those two guys but yeah it, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to just kind of him keeping his head on straight and he's always been good at the open like he loves that kind of golf course where you have to get shots um he loves talking to his golf ball he loves you know all that kind of stuff so if he can you know keep it together maybe maybe he's not a lock for the Ryder Cup yet you know technically I'm, I'm sure he'll be a a captain's pick and stuff maybe he'll make a run in a playoff event so yeah if he keeps it together it should be uh should be a really good year of golf next year when the majors roll around he's getting a captain's pick I would think yeah unless he just kind of really goes off the rails this last month and a half but I'm not even sure that would do a whole lot. all he's got to do is continue to kind of play decent I think he's definitely getting yeah captain's pick but that was just good to see because he's like he's a likable guy he's fun to watch and you know when he's consistently at the top at majors obviously it has a lot of a lot of draw and he kind of you know he spared a lot of boring leaderboards in the past right like there's a couple of those masters even where he didn't win them where he's in the mix to where there's actually some other guys around him are not that interesting so he's kind of he's kind of spared us from some some boring Sundays in the past so it's good having him back I read you mentioned your story um, a minute ago, I read it. It was very good. I agreed. I thought that was a great way to put it. Royal St. George's was, it wasn't, it's not a bad golf course, 
But like you mentioned, it doesn't really have much other defense other than the elements and the wind, which is true to, to some degree of most all of those links places. But I think you're yep. right in the sense that, that like Royal St. George is probably the extreme. And then you couple that with like the softness of it. And then at the same time, it's like soft. But then all of a sudden you get some weird bounce where you think a guy's hit a pretty good shot and then it kicks him into the rough or whatever, where it almost right. seems fair. Like, I didn't hate the course, but it was a very, very solid five out of ten. And I think you may have yeah. been in there too. Can you remember one hole from that place? I can't I, remember. No, the only thing you can remember is I don't even know what number it was. It was either 15 or 16, the par three, the lengthy par three or whatever that, you know, it, that was a fine hole, but there was just not like even – Paul Azinger, who was on the call yesterday, he was talking about how I mean, he just kept on bringing up the bunkers and the bunkers and the bunkers. And everybody on Twitter was like, dude, no, I haven't seen a person hit it in a bunker off the tee in four days. We, we don't need to talk about the bunkers because the wind's blowing four miles an hour. These guys are too good. They're going to avoid the bunkers. You're going to blow it off the map and hit it in the rough. They're not going to hit that little bunker that's just off the fairway kind of deal. But that, yeah, I mean, that's the defense, which you could argue that you know, over there, I think you've got to have the warm temperatures, which they have, but you got to have the wind to really crisp that place out. And it, it just wouldn't happen. I don't think the wind got over 15 miles an hour any day. So it just kind of turns into, you know, the, the players don't have to hit those cool stinger shots or get those rolled in the fairway. Like I wrote about in the thing, like Morikawa got some rolled on his, on his driver yesterday, but some guys would hit, you know, irons off of tees but you think, you know, a little low bullet run out 50 to 60 yards, like a racetrack, like you see at the old course or something when it's baked out, and they're getting two yards a roll. And it's like, are we playing at TBC Southwind or are we playing it over in England? So it was, I don't know, just not a memorable, not the best on the road by far, not even close. No, not at all. And I, I read a story actually, I guess, somewhere Saturday morning about how baked out it was in 13 which i think was the last time i was there and i'd be lying yep. if i remembered exactly what that open was or what the finishing score no was. yeah i do kind of remember yeah golf course definitely had a much better defense mechanism because of how dry it was and how baked out it was and i think the scores reflected that right i mean you don't see 14 under no. a lot often i think or 15 and then yeah. I think Heath had the lowest runner-up score of all time in, a, in, a, mm -hmm. in an open championship so like i, I couldn't agree more on that but uh, I think it'll click back around next year because, right, you go back to St. Andrews for the 150th yeah. Open Championship or whatever. So that'll be that'll be pretty cool. But any other kind of takeaways from the week? Like, I, it was just kind of – I guess if you want to go the underwhelming route, that had a chance to be like a five, six-guy deal all the way up to the end. And because of Ustazen in particular, it just became two very quickly. But did anything else stand out from the week? Yeah, it just, it just kind of started off slow for me. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I woke up at – I don't know, six, six thirty, just kind of catch the front end. Um, and it was, I was underwhelmed from the get go because you can call me a typical American golfer and golf fan, but you think of the open, you think about something going wrong, like somebody making a 12 somewhere, something like that. You just never, we never got that kind of stuff or, you know, somebody taking 40 out of a bunker raining sideways, at least for, you know, a couple of hours or something. You know, they always talk about, oh, you know, if you, it's all about the draw. You got to get the morning draw, then the afternoon draw, or the vice versa. And that wasn't a factor at all. Um, it was it was a good, not great open is kind of how I put it. It was it was great to see Morikawa. I think he's gotten many, many more ahead um, to kind of see him fend off everybody and then speed playing well. Rom, like I said, I think he was a couple putts away from really, really doing something special. But it was good, not great. 
That's how I, that's how I put it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, part of that is like I think a big part of it was when you lack the elements, it it it's not as challenging off the tee. I mean, how many guys did you see hit it off the map yesterday? I, I literally can't remember one. You know, they put themselves yeah. in a bad spot, hitting it a little, and you get in that deep. Right. Off. But no one hit it off the map, or no one put it like you mentioned in a bunker. Like I don't remember seeing someone hit it. I know in a bunker all week. And so I think when the elements are lacking and you can hit fairways a lot easier, the rest of it is, is kind of particularly with no wind going through the green, like is, is, is makes it a hell of a lot easier. I guess the last yeah. thing on the open before we hit like the Ryder cup and some other stuff, it, it seems like ages ago now, but Bryson DeChambeau did make some headlines. So driver sucks. Where do you stand on DeChambeau in general? This week aside, like, what is your stance on it? Because I've had, like, a complicated yeah, complicated relationship with Bryson DeChambeau. I'd put it that way. Um, yeah, I'm right there with you. Like, I enjoy watching a guy play golf. Um, but it's like, dude, you just you, – you didn't have to say that. You didn't have to open your mouth. You didn't have to do that. And I, I don't know. I'll ask you the same – like, you know, the Kepka DeChambeau stuff, I genuinely do think that they, they Kepka – Kepka's just a big bully, in my opinion. I don't think he likes DeChambeau. I don't think DeChambeau really likes him. But I think Kepka's kind of milking it a little bit too much. And I think, like, odds are that, like, 75% of this is fabricated stuff because the new player impact program where he's like, every player should be like this with Tiger not playing golf, which that would be Tiger's money every time he's teeing it up. If he's only playing five times a year, this, you know, the player bonus thing for likability and social media and stuff. I think a lot of it's played up and it's, you know, but it's entertaining. I mean, it's not bad for the game by any means. We're, we're, we've been talking about his Kepka eye rolling DeChambeau for hell, two months now. And there's a new chapter at it every week. So they know what they're doing. You know, they're milking it on social media. They know all that. And, you know, I think I wish kind of the PJ, if the PJ tour were smart, they would kind of lean into it a little bit more, which they're definitely not. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm, it's, I'm indifferent. Like, He's fine. I like, like I said, I like watching him swing a golf club. Um, when he's on, he's really fun to watch because, you know, he's beating it past people and he's an underrated. I mean, he's a fantastic putter. You can call him cheating because he does the arm lock. But when his, when the rock's rolling for him, he's he's pretty damn, pretty damn special. Yeah. So I'm in the same boat. And so it, I would say my first experience with the Chambo. So I remember him as an amateur player where it's like, oh, this guy cuts mm-hmm. clubs all the same size. This is kind of an interesting way yeah. about it. And, you know, you know, even when you watch like amateur golf and like the USM and all that, you don't really get a sense for who these guys are. You just like, oh, this is this really talented kid. Obviously, he's probably going to make it out on tour. And then he makes it on tour. And even before like the 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 Bryson like beef up of the pandemic last summer, like the whole air density and flag stick deal. It's like, come on, man. Like, the, like it was annoying. But then it was kind of like this. You got further into it, and he kind of had more success on the course, honestly. It kind of c- coincided with last summer's run. It was like, actually, mm-hmm. like, this guy's actually just this big of a dork. This is not some shtick. And as annoying as it can be, I can appreciate the genuine nature of it, right? Like, it, like people that are fake, I guess, would bother me a hell of a lot more than, okay, this guy's just a big nerd. And so yeah, it kind of sure. grew on me. But then anytime you think like you're coming around on him, he does something like he did Thursday. Oh. And then to to touch – before we get that, to touch on the, the Brooks part of it, could not agree more. I, like, it's the classic example of multiple things can be true at once. So what is yep. true about this? It is good for golf. It's funny as hell. It's entertaining. It mm-hmm. is completely, in my opinion, one-sided. I agree that they don't like each other. I, I That's apparently yep. apparent. But like – 
Brooks has seemed way more calculated about it. Where really the only thing Bryson has done was do the little wave at where I forget what the I know was, where that was at the Open, yeah, the U.S. Open. Yeah, so at the U.S. Open, and that just was clearly spur of the moment. He's walking to wherever he's going, and he sees Kepka and just yeah. does it to where Kepka has this planned out. I mean, Bryson had a public breakup with his caddy like three weeks ago, and within an hour, Kepka had had posted a caddy appreciation post. It's completely one-sided. It's completely bullying. I don't think the Shambos asked I mean, for it at all, but that doesn't mean yeah. it's bad. But you can also you, like sympathize with the Shambo just kind of getting bullied all the time. Did you see? Did you see Kepka's tweet? You know, after I guess it was the day after when DeChambeau said the driver sucks and that kind of thing. Which that him saying the driver sucks is like, oh, I mean, call out your guys, whatever. But then the quote after he was like, we have to figure out how I don't if I miss hit it, it has to be perfect. I'm like dog, this is golf. Like, if you miss it a shot, you shouldn't be awarded, you know, you shouldn't be hitting it 325 if you miss it off the heel or the toe, whatever. But as far as the Kepka stuff, you know, the day after he said, you know, I love my driver, whatever he said, you know, taking a dig at him. But then, like, 20 minutes after the, that interview aired, Schefter tweeted it out. Adam Schefter, the NFL guy. And Kepka tweeted back at him because Schefter didn't add him on Twitter. And Kepka goes, at, at me next time. I'm like, Dude, just be more like he's breaking news on actual athletes and stuff like this. Just like, let's chill out about that. Like, I, I understand it's for the PIP. You want this $10 million check at the end of the year, but just, let's just calm it down a little bit. It's, it's, he's just milking a little bit too much for me. Do you think that's what it is, though? Like, and it's, I'm, I'm not knocking him for it. Do you think it's as simple as this is easy way to make $10 million? Not that Kepka needs think so. $10 million, but who doesn't right. need $10 million at the same time? I mean, time? who? I mean, of the – I mean, who else is going to – like, if you had to rank golfers that are going to win that money this year, it'd be like – I mean, Kepka and DeChambeau would be one and two, and then who's three? Like, maybe Rory because he can't shoot under par anymore and everybody's talking about him. But, I mean, I don't know. John Rahm maybe? Maybe Spieth? But DeChambeau and Kepka, I think, are miles ahead of everybody else. Yeah, and, like, seriously, like, in terms of, like – guys in the headlines for likability it's like that those guys and then like a 50 year old phil like no one else right yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's kind of crazy and so yeah yeah i think you're right it's completely it's completely one-sided and you know it's honestly kind of a power move if you think about it with kepka just being like i'm about to shove this nerd into a locker and <laughs> yeah. get me 10 million dollars like i mean i like i don't yeah. knock him for it but it also is completely one-sided so getting to thursday it's, I thought it was important you brought up the second part of that quote because I wrote about this on Friday after it happened. And, like, I was like, I fully – like, this is going to sound like I'm, I'm a Bryson apologist, which, like, I'm well-documented not to be, but I'm, I'm very aware of how this is going to sound. When he said that, a part of me – and maybe I'm just making excuses for it. Is there a part of, like, he provides himself on having a competitive advantage because he thinks he handles his equipment better than anyone else on earth. He thinks he has mm -hmm. a competitive advantage over everyone he plays against because of his fitness and because of how much he knows about his equipment. Whether you think it's bullshit or not, like, that's, that's kind of irrelevant here. He believes that. And so him saying the – he's frustrated. He's saying the driver sucks right now. We have to figure out when I miss hit it how to make it perfect, which to your point, that's not really how the game of golf works. Right. I wonder if in his mind, even though it came out the wrong way, he's like almost putting blame on himself when he says we need to do that because he takes so much pride in making everything perfect. I just wonder if it came out like different than he intended. But the problem is he comes off as such a combination of like yeah. 
dorky and douchey. He's not getting the benefit of the doubt. But I, I found it less – it's like anything with Bryson. I found it less malicious and more tone deaf, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think he – I mean, I think as soon as he kind of said it, I'm sure he walked away from that camera and was like, oh, damn, should have said that kind of thing. But, yeah, it came out the wrong way. Like I said earlier, like him saying the driver sucks is like, okay, calling out your team, whatever. Golf – that doesn't happen in golf ever. I mean, a couple guys have had some pretty public breakups with their companies, but – Bryson saying that kind of the one of the more popular guys or more one of the more well-known guys we'll put it that way that calls a person out like that but then fast forwarding like Cobra coming back at him and the Cobra rep that came back at him being the guy that caddied for him two weeks ago after he you know quote unquote mutually parted ways with his other caddy was like we got some drama between the club manufacturer and the number of what six player in the world so let, let's get at it here yeah, you never one. You exactly. That's what made the story was the club manufacturer coming at him and essentially calling him a baby. Like, I mean, yeah. there's another B word you could use in there, but like, that's essentially what happened. I mean, like, he. I've never seen a like. Is that the first time a club rep's ever been interviewed in a story in that light? Like, obviously, like club manufacturers, like particularly those guys that handled the tour guys, like yeah, quoted in some things, but in terms of like. A, like a dramatic like kind of scathing headline like that that's got to be the first time a a club rep has made headlines in that sense it's it was so wild to me and it happened so fast like so fast like and maybe it was just i think it was the golf that was it golf.com or golf digest i couldn't remember who it It was was, uh i think it was golf week actually that got that okay so maybe maybe it was just the guy having the intuition to reach out maybe they knew each Mm -hmm. other but to me and this is just me putting my tinfoil hat on it happened so fast. I almost wonder if that rep was like, let me get the closest report. Yeah. On I'm about to respond because the quote came out with like within an hour. Within an hour for sure. Hell, it might've been a half hour, but yeah, like I think that, that that was definitely the first time that I remember somebody doing that. But I mean, the funniest part of it was like that guy caddy for him a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, he, he clearly feel pretty comfortable about, a position at Cobra to come out and just dig at your number one player on staff. Um, I, I haven't seen where he's been fired by Cobra yet. So I guess he's, I guess he is okay on that, that front, but it was, uh, it was pretty wild to read that. I mean, over the past few months with Kep Gundy Shambo and now the Cobra set at the end of the game, like golf in a golf hadn't seen that ever and not in my lifetime. And I'm sure they didn't happen, you know, back in the day. So it's been, it's been fun. It's been good. I mean, it's been fun for me to write about and stuff. Um, I've kind of stayed on top of that beat because it's, like I said, it's pretty unique stuff. And exactly what you just said, whether you like or dislike Deshambo, it is fun for the game. And we spent all these years trying to dub Patrick Reed. And I was in this camp too. I say people, I, I was in the camp too. In the, the mm-hmm. early Patrick Reed stuff, I was like, you know what? I don't necessarily like this guy, but he's kind of like the villain, like golf kind of neat, like having a villain would be fun. And he's that, but it turned out he's just kind of a cheating asshole. Like he's yeah, not yeah, actually yeah. the villain you deserve. I think it's Bryson. He just acts more so like Jimmy Neutron instead of what you would picture a villain being. But like he kind of is that. Like he's actually the one we deserve because, like you mentioned, you don't have to like it, but it's entertaining and it's harmless. To where I don't think you could describe Patrick Reed as harmless in terms of like golf right. and all that. Yeah, I mean, and another question is like, when are we going to get? Kepka and Bryson paired together. They haven't played together since all this happened. It's like, 
I knew the RNA wasn't going to do it. I really, really thought that the USGA was going to do it at the US Open because, I mean, I don't know. Maybe we'll get it in a playoff event this year or, I mean, it's not going to happen at the Ryder Cup. There might be, there's going to be a lot of stories out of that. They're really going to milk it there too, especially if the USA just getting their ass kicked. Like, oh, there's drama in the, you know, the clubhouse with Kepka and DeChambeau, that kind of stuff, which will be interesting and fun to watch again. But, yeah, we need to get them paired together to see what, you know, how that would go. The other, at the Open, I think it was Thursday or Friday after the round, or DeChambeau had finished, Kepka was about to go out. They were side by side on the range, which I think DeChambeau was there and Kepka came up next to him and hit balls. But, you know, nobody was smacking each other with nine irons or anything like that. Nothing, nothing exciting happened. You just nailed exactly what I wanted to ask next. <laughs> so he got that quote. Like, you know, Kepka had that quote of, you know, I can put up with anyone for four days. And that's kind of what leads you mm-hmm. to believe that some of this is for show. But that doesn't make it any less entertaining. But right, right. what you just said, what was it? I, what, I can't remember which Ryder Cup it was. It was the one, It was two, two losses ago, I believe, where Tom Watson pissed a lot of people off that, where he was mm-hmm. the captain and, like, he didn't handle the Saturday – they were getting their ass kicked. He didn't handle the Saturday night kind of, like, speech or whatever before. Right, right, right. It does happen if they're getting their asses kicked and DeChambeau's, like, feeling his Wheaties and decides to start saying something and Kepka's basically just yeah. – can someone shut this guy up? Like, I, yeah. I just – like, if they – if it doesn't go well – and DeChambeau kind of tries to be the alpha, which maybe he won't be because, you know, you can kind of be like the jock guy without necessarily being an alpha, which I think might be the perfect way to describe him. But just say he does do that or vice versa. How the hell does that go? I know, I know. And, you know, they asked him about it before the week, both players. Like, if they would get paired together, and Kepka was, like, very quickly said, oh, you know, I can spend four days, like you said, you know, together, but we ain't playing together. Like, that's not happening. And then Bryson flipped it, and he was like, oh, I'd love it. I think it'd be fun. I think it could make, you know, a great team. So you have the – you have kind of – we've kind of talked about it. Like, you have the kind of the two dynamics. Like, Kepka's kind of being a bully. DeChambeau's kind of being – he's there. You know, he's he's got other stuff to worry about. He's worried about making sure his driver faces the hottest thing on the planet and calling out his rep. But, yeah, at the, at the Ryder Cup, it could be – I mean – I mean, I don't know if I'm rooting for it because I think if it happens, the USA is getting their ass kicked, which I already think is probably going to happen anyway, especially on that golf course, depending on how they set it up. But, yeah, I mean, it should be, you know, I don't know how they'll handle it. But like I said, we've never seen anything like this before, so along for the ride. Last thing on this before we get to the Ryder Cup, this is probably a terrible time to unleash this take, but there's never a bad time for a, a takesman to cock his gun and fire. Has the, <laughs> the, the Bryson – Brooks beef somehow made Bryson a little more likable. And that doesn't necessarily mean that Brooks has to be less likable because that's the camp I'm on. The way Bryson's handled it, because it's gotten to the point where it's so one-sided that it's clearly Kepka bullying him. But Bryson just kind of brushing it off. Maybe that doesn't sit well with some people and he doesn't fire back often enough. But to me, that's made Bryson a little more likable to me. Where he, He takes everything so seriously, and this is the one thing he hasn't taken as seriously, if that makes sense. Right, yeah. Like, I think fans in like both camps have probably lashed onto their guy a little bit more. Like if you were a Bryson ride or die, you're probably, you know, big team Bryson now, but you see that on social media a little bit where, you know, guys will call out each other. And then if you're team Kepka, you're really team Kepka, but like Kepka, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago or not Kepka, uh, Bryson released like a 55 minute YouTube video talking to some trainer and stuff like that, or he'll post a, picture on TikTok or Instagram stories where he's lifting up his shirt like he's a 
19 year old TikTok star in LA showing off a six pack. It's like, dude, if you just play a little subtle and pick your spots here a little bit better, it'd be a little bit more even sided here. And he doesn't have like friends, like his social media. Works. Like, you know, you had the spring break crew back in the day and like, it was probably a little much, but it was funny. Cause it was like, these guys are clearly a lot drunker off camera and they're yeah. having a great time oh, yeah. in their early twenties. Everyone can relate to that. Bryson is just him and his buddies like down in protein shakes and shit. It is wherever he lives here in Dallas, like just trying to get yep. to hundred mile an hour ball speed on a Friday night. And I don't feel like that's as relatable because I don't do that on Friday nights. I don't think your average no. weekend warrior does that on Fridays. Like it's almost like he doesn't have friends. Like he has a crew and like, a, I've never yeah. seen a guy that Bryson's like genuinely friends with, which makes him a little well, more I mean, relatable. After he won the, after he won the U S open, I think he, I think he had, he said he had like a protein shaker. I think he almost said he drank like a couple glasses of milk and had a pizza delivered to the clubhouse. It's like, dude, I'm not remember if I'm winning the U.S. Open. I'm not remembering that night. I'm probably not remembering the next day either. But you're over here eating some delivery pizza and some getting some chocolate milk in you. I mean, just just take it easy. He'd be like you said. He'd be much more likable. He's a little bit more relatable. But he's a unique guy, man. He's He's doing what he's doing. He's he's richer than you and me. He's better at golf, so we'll see how it goes. Oh yeah, he's he's doing it correctly. Like he, you can't knock yeah. a guy for for kind of the strategy he has. Kind of transitioning into the Ryder Cup, so like major season's kind of over. We will have the FedEx Cup playoffs and all that. The, I don't know how I feel about this USA team. So you currently, I believe, actually qualified. You've got Morikawa, DJ, Deshambo. Kepka, JT, and Shoffley, and then everyone else is kind of in the mix. Yep. I don't know. Like, Harris English, great player, but doesn't, like, do it for me. And I'm not even talking about excitement factor. I, I can't, I'm like you. I can't decide if they're going to get their ass kicked or not. Like, there's actually a world where I think they could blitz them, vice versa. I just have no idea. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it's like I, earlier, like I said, it's going to come down to those captain's picks. And, like, who knows? If, are they going to take Phil? But, like, I'm looking at the standings right now. Like, from 7 to 12, it's Speed 3, English, Cantlay, which he's been kind of all over the map. Berger, I don't think, would be a bad pick. And then Finau. Then you get into, like, Simpson, Scheffler, Kokrak is 15th, Billy Horschel 16th. So it's going to depend on the cap. It's Steve Stricker this year, I think, right? Captain. Yeah. yeah. So it's just going to depend if he wants to go real young. Like, hell, Will Zalatoris is 20th. going to take him. Um, so it's going to depend if he wants to be, you know, kind of young gun, let's go for it kind of deal, which I guess Team Europe will probably be pretty young too besides – I mean, Paul Turr's got to be a captain's pick. Probably Paul Casey will be a captain's pick. But, yeah, it's just going to depend on how that goes. Is there a world at all where Captain America does not receive a captain's pick? Should he not qualify? I don't think so. I don't think I so. Think he, I think he's got to no. pick him. If he was sitting around like 15th or 16th in the standings, maybe. But I think you got to take him because he's, you know, you got to take – when it comes to the Ryder Cup, you just got to take some dogs. Like, I'd, I'd rather than take like Daniel Berger over Cantlay or English or I'd rather take him – I'd rather see Horschel get picked over Phil and Kevin – I mean, Kevin Nosh, 21st. Like, I want some young just dudes that are going to go, you know, kind of some more Akawa style guys that are going to go after the jugular and, you know, come beat me kind of deal. 
Yeah, Reed's got almost like the American Poulter thing, right, to where he's getting right. the benefit of the doubt to the end of time. Because if you play well in one or two Ryder Cups, you're, you're kind of – if you remain in the mix as a top, you know, 70-ish guy, 50-ish guy in the world, like you're, you're going to be in the mix for that. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I think it'll be interesting. It'll be, uh, it'll be absolutely entertaining to watch. But, yeah, there's a – like oh, I was yeah. going up the European standings earlier too, like – there's actually a shot that that team becomes pretty young, like a lot younger than they, you know, mm -hmm. they kind of had the same guys for almost a decade and a half now, but there's a world where that team is actually a lot younger than I think you would think on paper. Yeah. I'm pulling up here. Yeah. You got Hatton, Fleetwood, Rom. I mean, Rory's going to be on there. Um, Victor Hovland, he'll be there. It, I mean, it's, it, there's no doubt it's going to be entertaining. Um, we could be in store. I mean, what was, the last one was in Paris. That one kind of sucked for the Americans. Um, didn't live up to the hype there. But I think, yeah, this one could be pretty special if you if you like those young dogs kind of thing, which I think that's what makes it fun. Like, I guess it was uh, maybe Valhalla the year that they had it there. You know, you had Anthony Kim out there beating Sergio in like 12 or 13 holes. Like, we need some scenes like that, especially on American soil. It'll be fun to see, you know, the American fans – um, doing all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, I think the teams could – on paper, they should shape up pretty well. It's just it, – it, I mean, it all comes down to who's trending in the right direction. And, you know, like I said, you got to have some some killers out there. And I think the Euros probably have some more killer in them than the American. But um, we'll see if they can get, you know, the fans behind them and see how they react to all that. You mentioned the Anthony Kim reference. I moved to the Dallas-Fort Worth area last mm -hmm. August, so I'm almost at a year. And I swear to God, I will turn around and just keep a keen eye out for Anthony Kim wherever oh, yeah. I am. The odds of us frequenting the same establishment, probably pretty low, but a guy can hope. Is there ever yeah. been like a boogeyman in sports like this where it's like, can I just see this guy? That's one of the craziest I things don't... I've ever – and I feel like it's undercovered. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's so under wraps. Um, I don't remember what the Instagram handle is, and my brother will probably yell at me for even telling the story, but he's pretty plugged into the golf – you know, PGA professional world, that kind of stuff. And he was taught, he, he shot me the DM God, probably a year or two ago and said, Hey, this is Anthony Kim's hidden Instagram. And it was, if you, if you get, you know, if you can follow him and accept, you know, your follower request, whatever, this is the guy. And it was like, I don't know, know what I'm talking about. It was like Pete Bunny, something like something you never think about. So he's, I mean, he's alive. He's doing something. I just don't think, you know, I, I just picture him going to some muni every point in like the, the two man symbol, you know, collide, drinking a couple of beers and, you know, being a guy. I think he's, I think the last picture we probably saw, I think he had a full uh, tattoo sleeve. I think he's still got the long hair, you know, still taking names. Yeah, honestly, and, like, if you're like looking for a comparison, it's not that dissimilar because when he disappeared, he wasn't that old. If Morikawa right. disappeared in, like, 18 months, that would be very oh. similar to, like, Storyline, which is just incredible to think about. But that was, like, right pre-social media. Not 100%, yep. but, like, his rise was – and then his downfall mm -hmm. was the early years of social media. Like, this would be a much bigger deal now. Like, this guy just was a top 10 player in the world and just fell off the face of the planet. And, like, you know, I know golf – one of the, I can't remember, Golf Digest, maybe it was, did a like pretty decent investigative-ish piece mm -hmm. on him. Uh, that's actually, <laughs> he put him in place in some card game at some hotel in Dallas, and I've thought more than twice about showing up there a time or two. <laughs> and I was like, ah, I'm not going to do that. That's pretty stupid. But, like, I don't know. I just feel like if that happened nowadays with the age of social media and everything, like if Colin Morikawa in just, like, 18 months 
just went on this party hard lifestyle and just gave up golf. And I know AK had injuries and stuff. Yeah. Like that would be a wild story. And then he was just able to disappear without a trace. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Like, like you said, perfectly, like maybe a year later, two years later, like it would be a much, much bigger deal. And even you don't even have to put more cow in that equation. You could take like, I don't know, any, any top 75 player in the world and he just falls off the map. Like say a guy's won a few times on tour and he just, completely removes himself. And I mean, he's, he's living in the shadows, man. And I, you know, it's, you hear the stories about like, you know, he has the insurance policy, so he gets X amount of money with the insurance. But if he, if he tried to come back and play golf, but the insurance is millions of dollars. If he tried to come back and play golf on tour, which I, I don't know if he still has, I, I mean, he doesn't have any status on tour anymore, but if he came back and tried to do it, he'd lose out on that insurance. So it's like, get paid to do nothing or, you know, get back in the spotlight. And I guess he's just chilling. Yeah, I just, I don't, and I'm not, I, I know about the insurance policy, but I'm not like privy. I, I imagine none of us are to actually what the terms are. Like, right. is there any world where he comes back in like five years? Like, is there any, like, is, could that thing run out? And is there any world where he's like a 35-year-old Anthony Kim is just going to make a comeback? I, we can all, I'm yeah. wishful thinking, but I don't care. Right. I, I'm perfectly Yeah, yeah. Thinking. I think it's one of those stories that, like, I feel like pops up, like, every couple months in the golf. We're like, remember Anthony Kim? You'll, you'll watch some YouTube highlights or whatever. I'm just like, damn, that guy was good. Like, he had such a cool swing, and he had that swagger. And he, back then, you, you know, you could get away with wearing white leather belts, and he had the big belt buckles and stuff. But, yeah, he was, he was cool. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't – I think if he could come back, he would. I think maybe the injury really is that bad where he he just can't do it, like not at that level. But, I mean, he went out with a bang. I mean, I don't know what he did after that Ryder Cup. I, maybe he lost a little bit of status here and there and got banged up. But when he, when he beat Sergio in that Ryder Cup and then walked off the green thinking that the hole that was going to another hole when he didn't even know he beat him, that's, that's an all-time Ryder Cup, at least in our lifetime probably. Absolutely, and yeah, that's uh, that's probably like you talk about the guys like uh, the Europe kind of have more of a killer instinct. Like the Americans use a little more Anthony Kim in them, without like mm-hmm. golf swing aside, like they could use a little more of that killer instinct, and like that's kind of what made him likable. Oh, well. for sure. And then obviously there was like talk about the pre-social media days. You know, there was always like rumors of his lifestyle and the way he kind of. uh went out and you know i mean i think if he went to the whatever events in vegas i forget the name of it now like he mm-hmm. he, he did vegas and like wherever he went right like nowadays i feel like that would be a lot more public and like we need anthony kim in our lives i guess is the best way to conclude it and it's a damn so, shame that he's a ghost so is it like it's confirmed that he lives he does live in dallas like that's a fact yeah, so that, that I guess he could have moved since, but ever like there uh-huh. was a huge golf digester. I can't remember what it was. Piece. Okay. I want to say about three years ago that he does okay. live in the DFW area, from what I understand. Okay. I guess he could have moved since, but outside of that, I don't think anyone knows anything about Anthony Kim. Nothing. You'll you'll see like you know like the PGA meme accounts on Instagram, like you know somebody will DM him like, "Holy shit, I just ran into Anthony Kim at a bar," but it's like. I mean, who knows if it what 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 he's going on with his life? You know, you'll get snaps of him every once in a while, just out and about. But who knows? I guess he's just collecting checks, man. But I I wish it. I mean, how how old would he? How old is he? I'm about to look this up in live action. We'll get it on this. This is great podcasting. But I'm gonna look. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Uh, I'm gonna guess he'd be like 33, maybe 34. 
he would be uh, wow actually this is slightly older than i thought he is 36 okay he just turned 36 i would have guessed right where you're at um, yeah honestly now that I know he's almost 40, that kind of depresses me. I would have rather it if Wikipedia was like age unknown. That would be like perfect. We yeah, don't that'd be great. That'd be great. You just type it in and it just says who with a question mark. Who the hell is that? Early 30s, maybe? Like something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> Nobody knows. All right, so, dude, I appreciate the time. Last thing I have for you uh, before I let you get out of here. I have, uh, I've gotten into, ever since I started like writing and doing this newsletter, I've like almost gotten more like, like in tune and like following corn Ferry and some of these lower tours a little mm-hmm. bit, almost more than the PGA tour every week. And I know you follow it pretty closely too. Do you have a guy or a couple candidates for guys that we don't know who they are now, but they, we will in a year. Do you oh. have one? I put you on the spot. No prep for this, but do you have one? I don't think I do. I mean, not really. I, like I keep up with the same guys you do really. Like I'll keep up with Thornberry um local memphis kids grant hirschman i'm sure you know his name yeah um i was a senior in high school playing golf he was in eighth grade he won five straight um state championships eighth grade to senior year and i forget what school he went to here in memphis but i was a senior they came to our home course to play the regionals to go to state yeah i played with him and he beats me by 11 as an eighth grader on my home golf course it's like well that's a tough one to swallow. This kid, I think I shot, I think I shot seventy nine or eighty, and I was like, "Well, lost to this eighth grader by eleven today on my home golf course." But I think he's probably got a bright future. But yeah, I, I need to start keeping up more with you know the Corn Ferry guys. But I keep up with you know the local Memphis and Thorn. I know Thornberry's had a pretty good year. Um, I know he missed. The, I think he missed the cut this past week, but um, hopefully he you know stays in within that top twenty five. And then being a Chattanooga guy. Um, Steven Yeager, who I think he leads the money list over there on the Corn Ferry. He was at Chattanooga two or three years before I got there. That's he's, a uh, he's, Yeah, he's from Germany, and he, he's a flat-out – he's a baller too, man. He's, he can get real, real hot with it. No doubt. Dude, I appreciate the time. This was a ton of fun. Before uh, yeah, we man. get out of here, uh, put, so you've got Bro Bible, obviously. You've got a golf newsletter. Plug away. This is your, this is your plugging moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just uh, check me out on Twitter. It's at it. It is Mark Harris. Um, but, yeah, head over to brobible.com. You'll see kind of the author tab there. And we do a lot of good golf stuff. I've, I've really stayed on top of it, you know, both a little bit of a following over there with getting people to read the golf content and, you know, having fun. It's, you know, laid back, good place to read some stuff. Uh, all the stuff's good. And then, yeah, the newsletter, I try to stay on top of it as much as I can, try to get it out twice a week. And, um, yeah, buytheflagstick.com is my other kind of golf side hustle kind of thing where I just kind of have some fun over there too. But yeah, it is Mark Harris on Twitter is the best way to keep up with me and look forward to seeing you guys. I will second that. I've always enjoyed reading the golf content dude and all the other stuff y'all do over there. Yeah, man. I, uh, I appreciate the time and uh, we'll do this again soon. I appreciate it, man. Thanks dude. Really appreciate it. That's our show. I hope you guys enjoyed that. We've got some nice uh, football content coming down the pipe later in the week. So be sure to stay tuned. Have a safe and happy start to your work week.